hi everyone, this is Sebastian Lucier at Mintz. Uh, today we're doing another part of our Formation 101 series. Um, we previously did one around, you know, kind of the entity choice matters and the things to think about there. Uh, and this time we're going to be talking about um, the vesting process and issuance of stock to the founders and kind of the thoughts behind going into that. Um, and with me is my uh, partner and colleague, uh, Sam Efron. He is in New York, uh, and I'll give him a chance to introduce himself and some background in his practice. Um, so we just turn it over to you, Sam. You want to say a few words, and, and then we'll pick it up. Sure. Thanks, Sebastian. Uh, as Sebastian said, my name is Sam Efron. I'm a partner here at Mintz. I work primarily with startup and emerging growth companies as general outside corporate counsel, helping them with private financings and other commercial transactions. And I also have a fund formation practice and fund representation where I help funds uh, form and raise capital and also represent them in their investments in other private companies. Terrific. Thank you. So if you haven't watched the prior uh, part of this, it's, it's riveting television or uh, podcasting or video, however you want to put it. Uh, but the, the key facts underlying this is that I'm taking on the role of a founder. Uh, it's a company that creates uh, on-demand fish sticks and delivers them to your house. Um, and I'm part of a team. Uh, and my other team members include uh, Simon, who is our tech genius and is helping create the app. Uh, Eileen, who helps with our administration and serves as the sole employee. Um, and Annie, who is our chief financial officer and serves in a role as a consultant. Um, so I'm just going to dive in here and ask Sam some questions as if I were a client looking for uh, guidance. Um, so Sam, I think the, the thing that really brings me to you today is talking about you know, getting the initial shares issued to me and the other founders. Um, and I wanted to kind of understand this concept of vesting, which seems like it's not a great thing from our perspective as founders. Um, but I guess I just want to understand why, why do we want to do this? Why is it important? Sure. So I, I can understand how it would seem um, like something you wouldn't want to do. It restricts you uh, when you subject your, your, your founding shares to restriction. You can't transfer them when you want to. You can't sell them when you want to. Um, and if you leave the company, you lose some. So it seems like it's, a, it's maybe a punitive uh, arrangement. But it's really it's, it's there to protect you um, against sort of bad bad actors amongst you and your founders. You go you start a, you start a business and everybody's, you know, really gung-ho, they're excited about about uh, about the business, building the business, contributing to the value. But sometimes people leave. Some sometimes people change their mind or 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 they want to do something else. We have a we have a former colleague here at Mintz who decided he didn't want to be a lawyer anymore and he joined the circus. Um, you know, things change and what founders uh, don't want to have happen is everybody starts off uh, with an equal um, with an equal share, or however you allocate it amongst the founders, and somebody leaves after six months, and the rest of the team builds the company into something very successful, and that person shares equally amongst the other founders, even though they left before they actually built the company out. And so, by by subjecting shares to restriction, it creates an incentive. One, it for folks to stick around. You need to stick around until you're vested in order to get all of your equity in, in the business. But it also protects the folks who do stick around if somebody leaves. But if I'm a co-founder of yours and I leave after two months, I shouldn't get to keep all the shares that I started. Um, and so that's 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 the primary purpose. So but couldn't we do this, you know, at the time the person leaves? I mean, why why do we have to do this right now? Well, theoretically you could, but often um, at the time someone's leaving, there may be acrimony, there may be uh, a fight amongst the co-founders, and there's there's no obligation for that person to agree to it. 
So if someone's already leaving their co-founders in the lurch uh, and going to do something else, they just they may say, well, what's my incentive for giving this up? You guys are doing great. This is going to be a very, very valuable company. I'm going to walk away with a quarter of it. There's nothing, there's no reason for me to give it up. So it just ensures ahead of time when the times are good and everybody's in, in agreement uh, to protect against um, a future event where maybe things are not going as well. Okay. Do we have flexibility though at that time to maybe do you know the opposite? And and so if we have the right to repurchase, uh, say all of the shares, could we repurchase less than all of the shares? Sure, you can do that. The board of directors of the company is going to have discretion over how to treat them. Restricted stock can either be subject to forfeiture, which means that if you don't earn your shares, uh, then they automatically go away if you leave, uh, or they can be subject to repurchase at a very uh, low price or the issue price. The board at the time that, that the person leaves can say, well, you know, we're going to give them credit for adding extra value or, or, or for whatever reason they decide and say, you know, we're entitled to repurchase 100 shares, but we're only going to purchase 75. Or the company, you know, is automatically, the shares are going to be, all 100 shares are going to be forfeited, we're going to waive that provision and say that only 75 are going to be forfeited. So it is within the, the, the discretion of the board whether to actually um, take all or, or less than all of those shares when they come to I see. So it's a safety net in case we aren't able to agree in the future. That's right. Okay. Um, so you know, I'm glad you mentioned the, the concept of, you know, the vesting being giving additional vesting credit. I guess I want to understand uh, one of our founders, you know, has been working on this app um, that lets you choose the breading and the type of fish. It's really, really amazing stuff. It's going to totally change the, the fish stick market. Um, and so he thinks they should get some extra credit based on that, that work for his vesting. And then also, you know, he doesn't really think that the time-based vesting makes sense for him because he's going to be done with this thing, you know, by December at the latest, he says. And so he was saying, you know, hey, if he has a completed product, he should vest. Have you ever seen anything like that? Sure. So you can you can tie vesting to an, a number of different factors, and the most common are either milestone based or time based. Something that's purely time based will be just that. So someone actually has to stick around. The typical uh, the typical vesting period is is four years, although it doesn't have to be. It could be one year or two years. You can have a cliff, which means that you don't get anything vested until you've been around for six months or a year, and then after that. It'll vest in monthly or quarterly increments. Um, so you can have something that's completely time-based. You can also have something that's milestone-based. You know, a lot of times you'll have a consultant that gets equity and they have a specific job with specific milestones, right? I need to deliver, um, you know, this piece of the app on this date and I need to deliver a second piece of the app on another date. And you can say, well, when you deliver this thing, you're going to get one third vested. And when you deliver the second deliverable, you get another third. And you can also mix it up. You can say, well, you know, you're a founder. We want you to stick around just because you're working on this app as, as sort of your primary responsibilities. Now we, we're going to want you to continue with the company. So you could split it up. You could say half of your shares are going to be time based and half of your shares are going to be milestone based. You can, you can really mix and match however you like. Okay. Okay, interesting. And so, and I know that, that you're not a tax attorney, but I was wondering if you might be able to tell me, you know, what are kind of some of the, the tax issues around vesting? Because I have, I have a good friend and he was at a company and I guess he, made, he didn't do a filing of some kind. And then as his shares vested, he suddenly got taxed. Um, sure. Do you know anything about that? 
Yeah, so that 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 filing is called an 83B election. Uh, and what 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 happens when you get restricted stock is that the moment you get them, they're subject to forfeiture or repurchase. And there's a risk, a great risk that you could walk away with nothing. Right? If you on day one, you have zero, you have zero ownership to those shares, or at least they're treated as having zero ownership to those shares. So you have two choices when it comes to how those shares are treated for tax purposes. You could do nothing, which is what your sounds like your friend did. And if you do nothing, you'll pay no taxes in the first year um, because when you receive the, the shares, they have no value. They, they're completely subject to forfeiture. So, the, so the, uh, the IRS treats them as having zero value. The problem there is if you don't, if you don't file the 83B, as they vest, you are taxed on the value as they vest. So let's say you get 100 shares uh, in your first year and they're subject to a one-year cliff and then let's just make it easy, say one year vesting after that. So it's gonna, 25% is gonna vest in every year after the first year. When you get them, they're worth nothing. So you pay no tax. In the, in the, at the end of the first year, when the first tranche of your shares vest, 25% of your shares vest, you're gonna be taxed on the value of that 25%. So if the company's done really, you know, fairly well, and let's say the company's worth a million dollars, and those 25 shares <clears throat> are worth 10% of the company, then you're gonna have you're gonna have taxable income of of hundred thousand dollars because you're gonna oh, wow. be 10% of a million. Except you're not gonna have cash. The IRS is just gonna treat you as having received that cash called phantom income. You'll have to pay tax on that hundred thousand dollars, even though you haven't received anything. The same happens every time another tranche of shares vests. So if at the end of the at the beginning of the next year when your next 25% vests, if those 25% now the company's worth $10 million, now you're treated as having another million dollars of, of income, Ooh. and so on and so forth. So so especially for startups, the tax imp the tax impact can be very, very severe. Um the and and the way to avoid that is to file an 83B election. It allows you to essentially freeze the value, pay, pay tax on all of the value at the beginning, which for an early stage company for founders is essentially zero. Your, your shares might be worth a dollar or $10, depending on the par value when you receive them. You file the 83B within 30 days of receipt, and it's a very hard and fast deadline. You have to file within 30 days, no exceptions, no excuses. If you file within those 30 days, the IRS treats you as having received all of the shares and all of the value up front, which might be, like I said, let's say $10. So you pay tax on that $10 and then it freezes it. So you've paid all the tax. And as it vests, you don't have to worry about phantom income. And the only other time you might have taxable income is when you sell those shares later on. Okay, okay, that, that's good to know. Um, that filing, is that something that, that you guys prepare and, and file as part of the incorporation process? So we, we, will, we will guide you through it. We usually encourage founders to work with their accountants to make that filing. Okay, okay. Um, good. So I guess my other question then is around, you know, okay, I mentioned Simon, our, our tech genius has been working on this app. Um, so we don't, we just formed the entity now, and he's been doing some work before we formed it. So can he give his IP in exchange for his shares? Sure, he can. You can, you can uh, purchase shares for services, for IP, for cash, anything of value. 
can be exchanged for 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 shares. So that's certainly uh, one method of consideration or payment that you can use to pay for shares. Okay. Um, and is there any consequence to um, you know what if what if one of the founders wants to put in you know Annie Annie's talking she wants to put in like twenty five thousand dollars the rest of us are going to put in you know more like twenty five dollars does that create any complications? Well, it, it could especially if you're all getting the same number of shares because if Annie is putting in twenty five thousand dollars and getting twenty five percent of the company there's a there's an implied value to all of those shares her twenty five percent is worth twenty five thousand. If you're only putting in $25, then it could create a situation where you have now $25,000 of taxable income because Annie has basically set a value for the company of $100,000. For $25,000, she's getting 25%. So if you, Frank or, uh, or Simon, receive the same 25%, um, but you're not contributing anything else of value uh, like IP, for example, you're just getting it for your services. That would be compensatory to you in the same at the same value that Annie paid for it. So it, it could create a, a taxable income. Okay. And so then, I guess my my last kind of questions for you aren't really around stock issuance, but more about you know our roles in the company going forward. So I think the the plan is that I would be the president and CEO. Um, Simon's mm -hmm. going to be our chief scientific officer. Uh, Eileen's going to be director of operations, and Annie will be CFO. So that's kind of what we're thinking for offices. Do we need anything else? Is that kind of the right mix of offices? So that's a good mix. Um, depending where your company is organized, uh, the, the state statute that governs a corporation might require certain statutory officers in order to sign stock certificates. For example, in Delaware, you need, uh, one, uh, you need two of the three of a president, secretary, and treasurer, which are sort of statutory offices. And if you have stock certificates, you need two of those three in order to sign sign certificates. Um, outside of that, I think it's within, you know, it's really within the discretion of the board to determine what offices and what their titles are and what their responsibilities are. Ultimately, bylaws of the company and the board of directors itself are going to determine what are the appropriate offices, what are the appropriate titles, and what are the roles and responsibilities for each. Okay, so it sounds like we need to figure out somebody to serve as the secretary then, because we don't have that in, in the officer list I gave you. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, terrific. And then I guess, you know, the other question is kind of the board. I mean, obviously I'm going to be on the board and, and Simon, you know, our tech genius is very insistent. He's on the board. Um, do we need to have all the founders on the board or should we look for somebody outside of the four of us to serve on the board? Right. So you, there's no rule or requirement that you have all the founders on the board. Um, and depending on, on who the founders are and what their expertise is, it may not make sense to have all of them on the board. You also want to think about the, the number of people on the board. Right. We normally encourage people not to have even numbers on the board in case there's ever a split decision and then you're 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 in a stalemate. Uh, if you have that sort of situation, you can build in tiebreaker type mechanics. But if you can avoid it, it's it's better. And in terms of bringing somebody outside, it really depends on the type of business you're at, the stage your stage you're at, and whether or not that outside person is going to bring something to the table. Just having another person at your board meetings uh, in and of itself is not is not a necessity or, or even a benefit to the company. But if you can find an independent person who has ties to the industry or in other industry insight that can actually bring value to the board meeting and to the company, it could be valuable to bring that person on. Okay, terrific. 
that's great. Well, this has been really helpful. I, I think I've got some good understanding around the, the founder issue. So I'm going to go back to my team and talk to them um, and be in touch about putting together some restricted stock agreements. Great. Well, we'll look forward to helping you. All right. Well, thank you, Sam. Anytime.